0: A man named Noah, and I want to talk about Noah for a couple of different reasons. One, just because it's a great story. It's a familiar story if you've ever um, been taught the Bible as a kid. Surely you were taught the story of Noah because his story is kind of an extraordinary one. It's one that surprises a lot of people because it's very early in the the history of creation, right? God's created in chapter 1 and 2. He sets everything in order, he speaks it into existence, and it seems like almost no time passes before what we read in chapter 6 with what Blake read us is that the world kind of becomes something God doesn't, isn't proud of. It becomes wicked and evil, right? And so the story of Noah is amazing. Uh, and, ha- and what happens there, and we'll talk more about what exactly goes down with that. But I also want to talk not just about the narrative, not about the facts of the story, but I want to talk about why Noah matters to us. I mean, nobody knows exactly how long ago Noah lived. Um, we have some ideas, like if you are a, a believer in the Bible, you might come up with some numbers, Um The world might come up with other numbers, but whatever those numbers are, it was a long time ago. You're looking at minimally thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, And so, what does someone that lived possibly, you know, eight or 10,000 years ago have to do with me, right? And I think the common denominator, the thread that links us, is God's intent and His purpose and His plan. And fortunately for us, when we look at the story of Noah, we see it pretty plainly. And fortunately for us, even in the New Testament, as you guys have been reading through Peter, you see Noah mentioned, and you see a purpose and a plan for his mentioning even there. So you kind of, uh, in the span of probably when Noah lived to when 1 Peter was written, you might have had six or 8,000 years pass, and God is telling people that much later that there is something that they could have learned from Noah. There's something that Loa, not Loa, Noah modeled for them that mattered in their lives. And so I want us to talk about that this morning. And I also want us to keep in mind kind of our, our goals for this year. Um, I think Noah reflects in a lot of ways how this is true, that God's promises— are not just necessarily for a moment, but many of his promises last, and they have a thread that we can follow if we pay attention to what he's telling us. And the thread that we see with Noah's life comes true for Christians, and we're going to make that connection today as well. So that's why I wanted to talk about Noah's, because ultimately, not only is it a cool story to know, but Noah actually shows us some things that are true about us if we're going to be Christians. And show us something that God has planned for those who want to be Christians. And how he saves them. So beginning in uh, chapter 5, I, I do want to offer just a kind of some facts about Noah. Some of you may be more familiar than others with Noah. Some of you may have no idea who Noah is. So I wanted to offer a few things up just to give you some context here. In Genesis chapter 5, we're only five chapters into the Bible. So not... A lot has happened as far as like a story is concerned. God has created. That's a lot. Just uh, as far as numbers and things, that's a big deal that God created. And there have been some generations that have passed. And then Noah begins in chapter 5 when we're talking about the first man, Adam, right? Adam literally means man. Um, When this first man is created by god he begins having offspring with the woman named eve and we track that in genesis chapter 5 but eventually you get to verse 25 and it says methuselah lived 187 years before he fathered lamech methuselah lived after he fathered lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters that's all the days of methuselah were 969 years and he died When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, or rest, some translations will say there, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and at And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so what Blake read for us came on the heels of that reading. So there's some pretty phenomenal things just in that text. I wanted to offer this text for a few reasons. One, we get a little bit about Noah's immediate family. You see his grandfather, Methuselah, right? You see his father, Lamech, and you see Noah. And then ultimately you see he has three sons worth mentioning here, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we know a little bit about Noah's family. We even say that when he was born, we see that when he was born, um, his family thought something about him, right? They named him what he was named for a reason. They saw something in him that said, hey, this one is going to be something different or something special, right? In fact, that statement is made in verse 29, right? Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. All right, so I I don't know if that's so much common in our day and age to name kids names that actually mean something. We just name them names that we like. But that was was happening then, and so Noah receives this name. So that's a little bit just about Noah and a little bit about what they anticipated him being able to do in his life. But when you move ahead a little bit into chapter 6, we find out that the world hasn't done so well right? And that's what Blake read for us. Like in verse 5, for instance, of chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, and I think man here is kind of this general term, right? When he looks out on the earth and he sees man, this is what he sees. He says, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right, so I don't know how much time exactly has elapsed since God created, right? But as far as what we have written down, we're only in chapter 5 of the Bible, and God's already looking at mankind and thinking, okay, this is kind of going way that I didn't want it to go. And certainly, God didn't create man to do this, right? We see the story of Adam and Eve beginning a series of choices that man's going to chase after away from God. So what's Noah going to do? How's Noah going to play into all of this? You know, Noah is a guy that's been born into this, and his world is a world that looks really bad. I don't know how much worse Noah's world it was or is or whatever than the world that we live in now. I have no idea how it would compare. But I imagine most of us, if we have any kind of moral compass or moral center in us, would say that, you know, the world sometimes feels pretty bad, doesn't it? There are moments, there are times where we feel really good about people and the way people are. Like we experience a kindness or generosity or a love or a camaraderie that makes us feel good in a moment. But a lot of times when we step out and we watch the news, when we read the news on the internet and things like that, we have friends or family that experience bad things. We just kind of step back and say, man, the world just seems like a messed up place. I imagine Noah felt very similarly to how we feel a lot of times, right? And Noah, even God's commentary on the world he was in was that, right? Like, it was known for this. In fact, God was able to accurately say that the thoughts and heart of man was only evil continually. Um, So Noah's context is not exactly a pretty one, right? It's a messy one, it's a dirty one. And not just from his perspective, but more importantly, from God's perspective, he's looking down and saying that this isn't good, right? Look at verse 6, though. How does God feel when he looks down on the earth and he sees that evil is the thing that man dwells on? Well, God says that he feels sorry in my translation, right? He says he feels sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It's hard for me to imagine that back in Genesis chapter 1, every time God spoke something into existence, he looked at it and he saw that it was good. It's hard to imagine that everything that he had created good, and then with man he said it was very good, that four chapters later he looks down and sees that it's all evil and it makes him upset. It's hard to imagine that, like, course being run so quickly, it seems, right? You know, you have some generations pass and you're already there. But that's what God sees and that's what God feels and what a turn of events it has been. And look at verse 7. How does God respond to this? I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the bird of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Let's just stop there for a moment. When God looks at things that are supposed to be good and right, and He sees that they're evil, God's character demands something like this. That when you or I or something else is not living up to the intention of creation, when God created and spoke it was good, and somehow we change something from its purpose or its creational intention to something other than that, God's going to look at that and say, I wish it wasn't like that anymore. And I think Genesis chapter 5 is showing us, and Genesis chapter 6 is showing us, that this is God's character. That when you uh, vary or deviate from your purpose or something's purpose, and especially as that purpose goes from good to evil, God's going to say, I don't have a use for that, and I don't want that, and it makes him upset. I think that's a fundamental thing that Genesis is laying out for us, is that deviation is not a pleasing thing to the Lord. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. And so God decides, you know what, I'm just going to start over. That's kind of the picture we're given. He's like, I'm just going to to erase it all. I'm going to blot it all out. But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor, depending on your translation, it might say grace, right? But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so you might ask this question, why? Why did Noah find favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord? Like, what differentiated him from everybody else? I mean, God looked down and said, every man, every single man, whose thoughts were on evil continually. So why would Noah receive grace or favor when God decides to kind of look his direction? Well, let's look a little more at this. Let's look in uh, verse 9 here. Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, there's a ton that could be said about this. And I imagine um, you could spend a lot of time kind of dissecting what does this mean exactly. And I don't pretend to know exactly every facet of what these statements mean. But I can tell you that in some way, shape, or form, when God looked down on the earth and he saw that men were thinking about evil things, doing evil things, violating the good for which they had been created, right? He didn't see that in Noah. He didn't see Noah violating his very good creation. He didn't see Noah violating his purpose. In fact, just like Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden, in verse 9 it, sa- it says that Noah walked with God. There's some sense in which Noah had done his best to kind of restore the vision or the creation of man for himself. Like, he had found some way to kind of, in essence, walk with God again. You know, Adam and Eve were literally doing that in a garden, and God had to cast them out because they chose to follow their own pursuits and the serpent, which is Satan, right? But somehow, Noah, in his own way, had found the ability to begin walking with God again, Right? And I think it's tied to what's told to us about him just before this, that he was righteous and that he was blameless. Now God reveals a lot more as this book continues to be written and God reveals himself more plainly and more plainly and more plainly what exactly is involved in being righteous and blameless, like what that would take, right? And we know it takes a lot, like ultimately We know that God requires a lot for someone to be called blameless and righteous, but Noah is accomplishing that in some capacity here for God to be able to honestly say that and truthfully say it. And so Noah, I think, is a very admirable man. I don't know what exactly he was doing in his time before all of these laws were given to know exactly how to be righteous and blameless, but I do know that he was accomplishing it. That's God's commentary on it. Somehow, someway, in his time, with what he had around him and what he knew, he was living righteously, he was living blamelessly, and he was choosing to walk with God. Things that were not defining characteristics of his world, of his friends, of his family even, is kind of the implication of this. Do you guys ever feel like that? Like... I'm trying to be righteous, I'm trying to be blameless, but this world is not. Well, Noah was able to accomplish something along those lines, despite what the world was doing. So that's a little bit more about Noah. So God looks down on the earth, he doesn't like what he sees, it makes him feel bad, creation is not what he created it to be. But he looks at Noah with grace, and I think this idea that God is looking at Noah with favor or with grace, is one, because Noah's doing and living and choosing the right things, right? But also because this moves God to feel something different about Noah. I think that's an implication of this. When he looks at the creation that is evil, what did God feel again? He felt sorry, right? Now, he never comes out and says that he felt good about Noah, but that's kind of what you're left with, right? Like, he looks at Noah with favor because Noah's not leaving him with the same feeling that the world's leaving him. And that's an important concept that I think is going to carry us through some more in this lesson, is that Noah probably was not a perfect person, but Noah didn't leave God feeling the same way that the earth was leaving him feeling, that mankind was leaving him feeling, that Noah was not dwelling on evil continually. Right. All right, so let's uh, step outside of this for a moment. Let's look at verse 22 of chapter 6. I want to see something else about Noah here. As this story unfolds, God ends up telling him this kind of, it almost seems like uh, just outlandish thing that God is going to to blot out the earth and that he's going to do that with a flood. So God reveals that to Noah, and I think that's part of God's favor to Noah is that he tells him what his plans are. And Noah hears this plan of God. He says, I'm going to wipe out everybody on this earth except for you because you've found favor in my eyes, and I'm going to do it with a flood. And that's really what he tells him in verse 11 on down. But when you get to verse 22, God has told Noah, and you're going to survive this flood because I'm going to let you build a boat. And you're going to build a boat, and you're going to build it in a certain way, and you're going to put certain things on it, which involve a lot of animals. And you're going, to, you're going to build it with certain dimensions, and you're going to put certain things on the coating of the boat. And he gives them all these instructions. And ultimately what you get down to is verse 22. What does Noah do with this revelation, with these instructions and these commands and this new information? Ultimately, Noah did this. Now, this is a big statement. Like, everything that God said that required anything on Noah's part, he did it. And ultimately, it says, he did all that God had commanded him. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, God, in that moment, and between these two, few verses, it's, God is telling him to go to the ark, get your household, take with you all these clean animals. I mean, he's giving them all kinds of instructions. And I think big part of what's going on here is, why is Noah favored in God's eyes? Well, we read a little bit about his character. But that's also coming true once God starts showing him favor and telling him what's coming, because he didn't show that favor to anyone else. He didn't let anyone else directly know his plans. God is allowing Noah to receive this favor, this grace, because of his character. And because of his character, how does Noah respond to God's commandments? He does them. He believes them, and he lives according to them. What an outlandish thing for you to hear a voice or have a conversation with who you think is a God, right? Is the God. And him to say, build a boat. There's a flood coming. And you're going to bring all these animals on it. And only you and your family are going to be spared. And you're going to actually have to tell everybody that this is going to happen. And if they don't listen to you, they're going to be drowned in the flood too. Who's inclined to believe that if they hear that message? It seems like a crazy thing. I'm sure a lot of people are telling him, you're hearing voices, you're a crazy person, Noah, right? The reason I bring that up is because faith can seem outlandish in ways like that, right? Like, who'd have thought this is the way it was going to go, right? Like, who'd have thought God's grace to Noah would be through this kind of thing? a boat and some animals and building it and having to tell people about it. That's not how I would have done it if I was God. And if I was Noah, that's not how I would have wanted to have to go through this, right? But Noah did exactly what God commanded him despite those things. And ultimately in verses 21 and 22, let's read these together. Verse Chapter 7, verse 21. Let's actually start in verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So the water has like reached its peak. It's even over the mountains, right? Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out, this is God, every living thing that was on the face of the ground Man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. In a nutshell, this is the story that Noah is known for. Right? He's the guy that was living a blameless and righteous life, choosing to walk with the Lord in a time when nobody else was. And because the whole earth had rejected God, essentially, God said, that's it. It's time to start anew. And Noah, you're the guy I want to do that with. And Noah, because because of your character and because of choosing to walk with me, I'm going to tell you my plan. And because I'm going to tell you my plan, that's going to require you to do some stuff. And Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. And when God finally sent that judgment on the earth, right, to blot out every man, Who was there to survive and to be preserved through that judgment? Noah and his family, because he had found favor in God's eyes and because he had done everything God commanded him to do. I think this is a really important understanding. One, because it's an interesting story. But two, because it shows us the pattern for which God's going to save everybody. And that's the connection to us. Turn over with me, um, if you want to go ahead and turn to 2 Peter, that's the next kind of passage that we're going to start in, 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3. Really, the only two other places that I want to spend any real amount of time is in 2 Peter 3 and 1 Peter 3. So that's easy to remember, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, so just kind of keep that. We're going to flip between those two. I want to do some um, comparisons and some contrasts here. So God in Genesis decided that he's going to take care of the sinfulness of the world by flooding it and starting over with someone who is faithful and righteous, right? We know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, and give me a moment to turn there, 2 Peter chapter 3, God actually says that he, he intends to do something similar, though different. When you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, let's look in verse 3 here. 2 Peter 3, or actually, let's start in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that uh, these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And I want to stop there for a moment. And God is comparing and contrasting. Like, you remember how the world was washed away and deluged with water? Well, the same thing, same type of judgment is going to happen to the ungodly again on the day of judgment, this final judgment. But instead of water, it's going to be with fire. And I think this idea of fire is finality. What's burned up is gone. And so the day of judgment is kind of this ultimate sense of the day of Noah, right? Like the day of Noah was a shadow of what's ultimately going to come in fire, right? And so I think with this truth in mind, we learn a lot about how God wants to deal with that, right? So one contrast here is in Noah's day, God was going to destroy the wickedness of the world with a flood. As Christians, we know that someday... Because what Peter tells us, God's going to do a similar thing, but with fire. And I think there's a finality to this. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, it seems as if this something that God looks down on. And he sees like there's a moment of clarity where he sees, man, everybody's evil. And so it seems somewhat hasty. It seems a little quick, right? Like, we know it takes a while for Noah to build the ark and for the preaching to occur, but within a generation, everything's gone once God makes that proclamation, right? That seems fairly hasty if you're looking at things from kind of a macro level of, like, generations and generations. Within a generation, God starts over. He makes a declaration, and maybe a hundred years later, it occurs, but we know that in uh one contrast we see here, look at let's continue in verse eight of Second Peter three. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Time is irrelevant to the Lord, right? Verse nine: the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. There's a sense in which God's judgment is slow. This judgment that's going to come with fire, this final judgment, this ultimate judgment is not a hasty judgment. It's not a judgment that's going to come like the flood did and in a generation, it happens and it's over. In fact, God purposely contrasts what happened in the flood because look at what he says here. He said he's not slow, as some count it slowness, but is rather choosing to be patient towards me. He wants to be patient towards you. And the reason that he's trying to be patient with us is he doesn't want you to die. He doesn't want that. He says he doesn't want you to perish, and if you keep reading here, it says, in fact, that there's something that he does want. It's not all negatives. It's not like he doesn't want you to die, and he doesn't want to do it quickly. It's all for the reason that you might repent, and the implication of repentance is, in this text is that repentance is the way to avoid this, this fire, this, this destruction, this judgment. In Genesis chapter 5, 29, that we read earlier, that there's this sense in which Noah was expected to bring rest or relief. And when you look at that story, you're like, that's not exactly the rest or relief I anticipated. I expected like a lot of people to be helped, right? And ultimately, he saves eight, including himself, right? Now, there's a sense in which God would look and see relief. Judgment has been executed on those who are wicked. And now he can start fresh with a family starting that walks with God, right? But in this text, we know uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's no language like rest given here. But in Hebrews chapter 4, 11, we know that what God is offering, if we can be saved through his judgments, is eternal rest, What Noah was maybe able to offer to kind of in some sense to eight people and like being a faithful man and being able to offer them salvation through this ark that God allows him to build and give them rest and relief from the wickedness of the world. What God is wanting for us is eternal and perfect. And it's not just for eight people because he's slow and he's patient and he wants you to repent so that in a much greater sense, you'll get the relief that people thought Noah was going to bring. Right. So these are some of the comparisons and contrasts and primarily contrasts that we see. But I want us to not just think about like, oh look, Noah's judgment day is similar or different than the judgment that we should expect today at some point to come around. Because he says it's going to come like a thief at night. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And Noah had a pretty good sense of when it was going to occur. But what I want us to focus on is not the the guessing of when this judgment is going to come. is not the trying to figure out how long it's going to be before God is no longer going to wait for us to repent. That's not what I want us to think about this morning. Really where I want this lesson to go for us is on a more personal level. I want you to think about what this means for you. Why does Noah matter to you? I mean, does he matter to you? Like, does he teach you anything about yourself? Does he teach you anything about who God is? Does he teach you anything about maybe how God looks at you right now? Are you someone that God is looking down on, and like Noah, he says, blameless and righteous, and they're walking with me? Or does he look at you and just say you're part of this whole raff that's going to be swept away? That's the question that I'm left with when I look at Noah's story. Is I'm like, man, if I lived when Noah lived, who would I have been? Who would I have been? And God is saying to, through Peter, you know, he's kind of doing the same thing right now. He's looking down on this whole thing, and he's looking at some of us, and he's going, you're all right. Like, you're, you're going to make it through this thing. I'm going to bring fire someday, and you don't know when that's going to be. But like those who Peter was writing to, you're going to be all right. But there's a lot of us out there that he's looking down on. And he goes, I need to be a little more patient with them because maybe they'll come to repentance, which means you're not going to be okay as you are right now. right? There's people in this room, there's people out of this room that God looks down on and says, I'm going to have to be a little more patient with them because they're not there yet. And I hope that they will someday, but Fire's coming. And they may be burned up if they don't change. Noah is an example of how God saves people, why God saves people, who God saves. You remember how in Genesis chapter 6 it said that Noah found favor in God's eyes? I think we do the same thing. And I think we've all found God's favor. I don't think Noah... um, there's no Noah today. It's not like Robin is the only one in this room that has found God's favor, and the rest of us just kind of have to deal with that. And what I mean by that is just like Noah was looked on and given the opportunity to like build this ark, right? We have an opportunity to save ourselves. God has looked down on us graciously, that's this idea of we have grace, right? He's looked on us graciously and said, you know what, I'm going to send someone that's going to be able to help you out. And that someone was Jesus. And because of the grace with which God looks down on us as people, we have an opportunity to, to be a Noah, right? We have an opportunity to listen to the things that Jesus is saying about our lives, listen to the things that he's teaching us about forgiveness and repentance, listen to the things about what it means to be a disciple, and do as Noah did, right? Do the things that God is commanding. God has looked down on each one of us with grace already, and that was Jesus. And now is our opportunity, if we're going to draw a parallel, to build the ark, to do the things God is commanding to do. Right, But like Noah, remember in uh, Genesis chapter 6, it said he sought God wholeheartedly. Um, we need to do the same thing. And we need to do exactly what is asked of us, just like Noah. And ultimately, we'll be delivered safely through God's judgment. In fact, um, look in 1 Peter chapter 3. I told you we'd be flipping between these kind of two spots here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they were formerly uh, did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. You know how we find grace in God's eyes is not just because God has given us Jesus. That is the foundational grace with which God has looked at us. But the grace that we've been given in God's eyes is that the water in this uh, portrait in 1 Peter chapter 3, you know, in Noah's days, the water, if you looked at just Genesis, it would seem like the water was the judgment, right? Like it swept away all the wickedness. But from Noah's eyes, what was the water? It was salvation from a wicked generation. It was salvation from the uncleanliness and sin of the day. And it was water that brought him safely from that to the other side where there was only them and God. right? And I think in 1 Peter chapter 3, that's the parallel that's being drawn. It's not that the water's from the sinner's vantage point, were judgment, because they were. But 1 Peter chapter 3 is making the argument, for those being saved, the water is the salvation. And Noah experienced that. He was saved by that water. And so in this text, it's saying, we too, like Noah, can be saved by water. Baptism, which now corresponds to Noah's story, right, which corresponds, relates, is the thing that, it, it doesn't just wash dirt off our bodies. But when we're baptized, it says in this verse, in verse 21, it saves us. It's not just removing dirt, but it's an appeal for a good conscience, right? When God looks down on us, just like he looked down on the days of Noah, he's either going to be disappointed, he's going to feel sorry, or he's going to look at us and be proud and see that we're walking with him. And when I'm baptized. Not only does that tell God that I want to walk with him, it makes it possible for him to look at me as blameless and righteous. Because in this text it's saying that baptism directly relates to salvation. Just as Noah was directly saved by the water that swept away the sins of the world, baptism directly brings me through the judgment that is being proposed now. That God is patiently waiting for those to repent through. And so if I want God's grace, not only do I have to just like hear about Jesus and know what he's teaching and like appreciate him, but I actually have to do as the Lord commands. And part of the commandment is I need to have this water that directly corresponds to this story of Noah save me as well. And then I can actually live a life of discipleship. There's a lot of passages that talk about what baptism means to a believer. Uh, Romans 6 is a good one to turn to that gives us the imagery that is involved there. Um, but I believe that the way that God talks about baptism is it's the start of discipleship. It's how I tell God that I'm one of His. And then the rest of my life, I'm showing Him how I'm one of His, right? And so... Look at this as well. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, I need to do exactly as God has asked of me, right? I need to be saved through this water. But look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Because they formerly did not obey, right, when God was patient in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, Uh, They were brought safely through water. Isn't that what we want? God's character demands a moral. His character demands that there is a right and a wrong. And His character, who He is, is the right. And anything contrary to that is the wrong. That's why when He created, He got to say that it was good. And when it violated its purpose in creation, when mankind started to steer away from that, he looked down and felt sorry and had the right to wipe it all away, right? And so what do I want? What do you want? Do you want to be saved from the wiping away? Do you want to just be someone who's blotted out that you wasted what life God granted you graciously to just be offensive to him and to be erased, Do you want to be someone who is not saved in the judgment? Rather, you're part of the group of people that looks at that water and says that that was condemnation rather than salvation. Do you want to be someone who fears the judgment, who fears God's character rather than appeals to it and pleads for it? If... If that's not who you want to be, if you don't want to be afraid of God's character, if you don't want to be afraid of judgment, if you don't want to be wiped away or washed away because of God's righteousness and the judgment that that requires, then you need to obey. You need to take the grace that God has offered you in Jesus. You need to take the water that He's offering as either a condemnation or a salvation and make a choice. that, Then choose that you want that water to be your salvation and not your condemnation. You need to make a choice that you will walk with God and that you'll do your best in His eyes and in His ways to be righteous and blameless. And you need to ultimately let God deliver you safely through the judgment that He says is going to come as fire. Um, That's my appeal this morning. I know there's a lot of us in this room this morning that already believe that stuff and have already done that stuff, but I know there's a few of you in here that haven't. Um, and maybe haven't even thought about it just because no one's told you. And that's fine, but this morning is your time to consider what God is saying to you. And I don't want to be guilty on the judgment day of not having told people what they needed to hear. Um, And so that's why I felt compelled to to do this lesson, especially since we're studying through 1 Peter. Um, So anyway, I hope this lesson was helpful. I know this isn't a popular lesson to tell people that they need to do something. Um, And that there is wrong and there is right, but that's the truth of it. And I hope that you would take that seriously. So Robin's going to lead us in a song now. If there's anything that this group can do for you this morning or this afternoon, that you want prayers, that you want to talk about something, that you need more teaching on, reach out to me, reach out to someone else that you trust here, because we want to help you. Thank you, guys.